Alan Form. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Quick shout out to our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and a fantastic place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant in the East Village of Des Moines, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street, fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Thanks also to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines, Iowa City, and Minneapolis. That's my tax and accounting firm. Give Ying Sai, Community CPA, a shout for all your tax and accounting needs. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been working on creatures great and small for over 30 years at Story County Veterinary Clinic. And finally, thanks to Noche. Noche is Des Moines' premier cabaret and jazz club. They've also got a fantastic cocktail bar. They feature national and local acts, uh, some great talent. That's Noche located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. All right, welcome to the program today, folks. And I'm delighted to have Tom Steyer as my guest, uh, one of the uh, many candidates running for president on the Democratic ticket. So just when you think it's getting smaller, it gets bigger again. So, Tom, you, um, you are running, uh, you've said that climate change is your top priority. Do you see that as a unique position, or are other candidates also taking that stand? Ed, it is a unique position. There are other candidates. I think everybody who's running as a Democrat knows that climate change is important. I think everybody has some position and some policy on it. But there's no one else who will say it's their number one priority. What about Bernie Sanders having Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come here to Iowa, big climate summit? Does that indicate that it's going to be his top priority as well? Ask him. I, I, I don't believe he would say yes. I, I mean, I, I, if, he, if, if it is his number one priority, I wish he'd say it because I'm saying that no one else will say it. And if someone else says it, then I'm wrong. But I don't believe he will say it. And he hasn't said it so far. And so uh, you have been working on climate for a long time. Yes, I have. Like how, how long are we looking at? Look, I think I figured out that this was going to be an overriding concern for the United States and the world somewhere around 12 years ago. I mean, I can't pinpoint, but you know, we that, used that, to do... That's this. exactly when I came to my Is that true? Not, uh, 2007. We literally yeah. used to do this thing. We used to... Our, my family, my wife and four kids used to sit around the dinner table and say, you know talk about current events and put ourselves forward and say, what are we doing that's so crazy that people in a hundred years are going to go like, what were these guys right. morally brain dead? Yeah. And we can't, and we literally sit around the table and we're saying, wow, it's going to be climate. Yeah. And so, and, the, and then we started to think, what can we do? Mm -hmm. Like if there's a failure in the system, what can we do to bring kind of common sense to bear, to, to, to get, America, which we, you know, to lead, to do the right thing here and around the world. And that, is that part of your pitch to voters, too, is that you've been working on climate for a long time? Uh, it's been a focus for you for a long time, longer than anyone else running. Well, that's true. But it's not just that I've been focused on it. I mean, we have been winning it. You know, uh, 10 years ago, I ran a proposition against two oil companies in California, where people in California felt like no one's ever going to meet an oil company. They, they have too much money. They're too ruthless. What were the oil companies proposing to do? They were trying to... California has the most progressive energy laws in the world. And right. the oil Donald, companies Donald Trump is constantly taking, taking shots at it. Yes. <laughs> and the oil companies were saying, let's get rid of this. It's killing the uh, economy. Okay. And so they'd had a similar fight, different, but a lot of the same basic premises four years before... And the, a, a person had spent $72 million of his own dollars and gotten creamed. Wow. So everyone in California was like, you can't beat oil companies. That's ridiculous. So that's just the way it goes. We got 70% of the vote. Yeah. Wow. So it's like, we can beat these people. I have been beating these people. You know, I've fought against pipelines. I've fought against, you know, fossil fuel power plants. We've pushed clean energy around this country successfully. So it's not just that I've been doing it. We've been winning, and we're going to continue to win. We just have to step it up. And I'm glad you mentioned pipelines, because that's a big climate issue here in Iowa. The uh, Dakota Access Pipeline was built over the objections of a majority of Iowans. And uh, right now I'm encouraged that 10 of the presidential candidates, including yourself, have come up with statements against doubling the oil. And that's what, that's what the company wants to do right now. They want to double the flow of oil to 1.1 million barrels a day. And you come out against that. And it's not just a recent position again. You've been no, fighting been, pipelines for a while. Look, 
We have to rebuild America in a sustainable fashion starting today. Any time that we spend money on fossil fuel infrastructure, it's a mistake. It's a flat-out mistake. Yeah. We have to make a change and going back to the old way and doubling down on something that's absolutely failing, is we just shouldn't do it. We have to decide together what you and I both decided 12 years ago, which is this is not sustainable. We have no choice but to solve this problem. But the good news is we can solve it and we can do it in a way that literally creates millions of good-paying union jobs across this country. It's already and happening. We have, uh, we, what, seven or 8,000 jobs here in Iowa just in wind. Look, look you know. if you notice, I don't know, there was a, a press release yesterday that GM and LG Chemical are going to open a battery plant, for a car battery plant mm. in Ohio and create 1,100 jobs. If we're going to rebuild America, it's going to take an all, you know, people are going to get great jobs. We're going to rebuild the middle class. We're going to reimagine what America's role in the world is, which, God forbid, we all, shouldn't all recognize is way overdue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot, a, more and more people are recognizing that. So uh, one of the pushbacks I've, I've heard from some people regarding your climate work is, well, he also got a lot of his money from coal. Uh, you had a lot of investments when you were, uh, when you were managing the hedge fund that uh, panned out because of your success with coal. How do you do about that? Look, we actually invested in every part of the economy. We invested in fossil fuels less than their percentage of the economy by a lot, but we did invest in them. As soon as I came to the conclusion, oh my God, there is this unintended consequence, I divested. I took the giving pledge to give more than half my money away while I'm alive to good mm -hmm. causes. And I've been fighting on the other side successfully for a decade. Look, do I wish I'd figured out sooner that there was this unintended consequences? Of course I do. I bet you do too. But what we're really asking Americans to do, what I'm asking is to do exactly what I did 12 years ago, which is say, okay, we are doing something that has an unintended consequence that we cannot afford. Mm. And that we can solve this problem, and we need to solve it, and we need to do it together. And in fact, solving it is going to be great for us. It's going to make us better employed, better paid, and healthier, because we're also going to clean up the air and water as part of rebuilding America. Let's talk a little bit about some of the political side of stuff here. Uh, you have Bernie Sanders campaigning against the billionaires, well, and Elizabeth Warren as well. Well, really, nobody likes billionaires anymore. Uh, <laughs> and here you are. The, now, now, the, now you're the junior billionaire. We've got Michael <laughs> Bloomberg in the race with way more money than, than you've got. Uh, uh, but still, there's this impression that, well, do we really want to nominate a billionaire? Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I think two things. One is, look, I'm running because I think we have a broken government. And I think it's been purchased by corporations. And I've been fighting that fight for over a decade, organizing coalitions of American citizens to stand up for their rights and beat unchecked corporate power. So I'm not running as a billionaire. I'm running as somebody, as an outsider who successfully built grassroots organizations and take on corporations and beat them. And the other thing I'd say is this. Look, I started my own business. I started my own business from nothing. I inherited no money from my parents. So am I embarrassed that I worked in the private sector and succeeded in it? No. You know, in fact, whoever is going to be the Democratic nominee He's going to have to beat Donald Trump, and he's going to have to be able, he or she, he's going to have to be able to take Trump on, on the economy and take him down, because he's a fake. Yeah. He's, he's terrible on the economy. He's a very unsuccessful economic president. But, you know, I have a 30-year history in the private sector that says I actually know what creates prosperity. So do I think that it's important for the American president and the Democratic candidate to be a strong steward of growth? Sure I do. Is that enough? No. But does every American want, need to know that the next president knows what he or she is doing about the economy? Yes, and I have a completely different background, much more depth, much more experience in terms of understanding that. So, again, there will be some who argue that, well, we don't want another billionaire. But there are some who are going to argue that, well, he's not rich enough. <laughs> and we've got Michael. I mean, look at the, the recent polling, you know, average of polls showing that you're between 1% and 3%. And here's Bloomberg just entering the race, who's between 3 and 6%. What's that all about? I mean, here's a very, I mean, he, Bloomberg put out a great, you know, helped publish a great uh, film, Paris to Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. 
but when asked about pipelines, he supports them. He so, does? Yeah. I didn't know that. There's a big distinction there between you and him when it comes to fossil fuel Good infrastructure. Grief. He supports pipelines? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he, here's his, his direct, his, his, his direct uh, com- comment to me and Kathy when we confronted him on it was, what's the problem? They're underground. Wow. Which, uh, Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, we have, we, that's, that's a direct quote. <laughs> but, so, but, there, but here he is. Here he is coming in with this an incredible amount of money. But, 30 million bucks on ads just right away. Look, How does anybody compete Ed, with that? I think there's something else going on here. Yeah. I think, first of all, there's a question about message. I think the whole question here is who's going to tell a truth that's differential and important that's going to resonate with Democratic primary voters. I think who's going to be trusted to who actually people are going to look at and say, I trust that person to stand up for what's right. I think that's the whole question in this race. And I think everybody's searching for that really hard. And I believe that my my experience of leading grassroots, my experience of taking on corporations and beating them. People and I. My whole goal is to see as many people as possible. And do you think Bloomberg can get to the point where uh, enough people can trust him? Can he buy? Can he buy that trust with his deep pockets and his advertising I, capacity? I have no idea. But the other thing I'd say is this: You're quoting national polls. This yeah. isn't a national race, right? In fact, we're in Iowa. Yeah. If you think it's a national race, then what? No, the I heck? don't. <laughs> it isn't, and that's right. my point. But, is but yeah. those polls. <laughs> Yeah. Of, of places where people have never seen the candidates. So what is the your real st- question is, how, how are you doing with the people who you've actually talked to, who have actually yeah. listened? Look, Iowa is specific because people here take their first-in-the-nation position incredibly seriously. They come out, they're sophisticated, they're knowledgeable. They, and we're, and we're, really and we're undecided. A lot of us are still undecided. Look, we're at a, I, I really do think we're at a moment which I thought was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to happen this early, where Democrats are like, oh, my goodness. We're going to have to produce a real candidate who can beat Trump and be responsible and be trusted. We're there. But don't Democrats sometimes overthink that? I I mean, John Kerry won in 2004 in part because he was somehow at the last minute regarded as the most electable. It didn't go very well. Look, Hillary Clinton was hands down the most electable over Bernie Sanders. That didn't go very well. Ed, I'm, I agree yeah. with you. I think <laughs> if you look at the last 50-plus years, when Democrats nominate an outsider, they win. Right. You know, Obama, Jimmy Carter was an outsider. Obama was regarded as Bill an outsider. Bill Clinton was an outsider. Yeah. Obama was definitely an outsider. When we go to the safe candidate, mm-hmm. we lose. Mm-hmm. In, in, in fact, look, to me the question here is going to be, we're in a tough spot. Hmm. Look, I'm not saying I'm not saying I declare a state of emergency on climate as a political move. I'm declaring a state of emergency on climate day one of my presidency because we have to, because it's a state of emergency. It's a scientific necessity, not a it, political one. And so mm-hmm. I'm absolutely doing that. So we're in a tough spot. Hmm. We're going to actually have to succeed. We're going to have to do the right thing. And so I think Democrats are going to have to think really hard about that. Who not who's the safe person. Who's actually going to do it? So uh, one other concern I hear raised is, well, you know, Tom Steyer was working really hard on climate for a long time, doing great work, and then suddenly he dropped that to switch to impeachment. And there are folks who don't understand why you made that switch, especially understanding just how passionate you are about climate. So yeah. why, why did you make that switch? I didn't switch? see it as a switch. Okay. I kept working on climate. Okay. I never stopped working on climate. Okay. You can go back and look at the years when I was leading the Need to Impeach movement and see that I was still working really hard on climate. I I never stopped that. The reason that I started Need to Impeach was I thought there was something desperately wrong at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, that there was a threat to our system that was deep and that unopposed could control our country for the foreseeable future. And I felt like I was trying to... It's actually a a petition drive to get over 8 million people signed up to say, we've got to stop this. Is that how many signed up? 8.3. 8.3. I mean, I'm not running it anymore. It's still going. Yeah. But the point was, and, and I've said this before, look, my father was one of the people who prosecuted Nazis after World War II. He was a naval officer, and then he was a lawyer before the war, and so he got, was one of the prosecutors at Nuremberg for the Nazi war criminals. And he said to my brothers and me growing up, if you see something really, really wrong in your country, you have to fight it really early. Mm. 
because I can see yeah. as a result of this, they, they, they let it go. You can't let it go. And that, that same analysis applies to the climate crisis as well. Yes. We may have let it go too far. There's no quest. Look, and, and, you know, for people who say, Tom, you know, you're spending a lot of money on your campaign. I say, look, we have a crisis here. I am all in. Hmm. I am doing every single thing I can to make sure that we come out of this in a good place. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And that's exactly what I'm running on. And that's really completely consistent with, your, with what I've done for the last decade, which is to say, if I see something where I really, really think we're getting to a, a place that is dangerous and scary for Americans, then I'm going to try and figure out what I can do to have the most positive impact. And that's what I'm doing right now. And, you know, another concern that I hear voters raising is that uh, the media aren't taking climate seriously. If you scroll through the daily stories from Iowa paper, papers or even national papers, climate is rarely in the top list. That was, that was when, when Jay Inslee was running, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State, anytime he did a speech and an event, uh, it was always, the story was almost always about climate. Is, it, is that, are you finding that to be the case as well with you, that now that, that you know, we have another candidate who has claiming to be his top priority, are, are the press taking climate more seriously through your candidacy? You know, I, the press is going to do what it's going to do. And the example I would use is, I've been in two debates so far. I'm going to be in another debate on December 19th in L.A. In the first debate, there were no climate questions. I know. I brought it up, I think, three or four times. Mm -hmm. Bernie brought it up one time as part yes. of an answer. But that was it. Mm -hmm. So when people say to me, you know, are they is this critical? I'm like, look, it is critical, but people are not. Look, I've run campaigns on this. People are not talking about it in a way that resonates. The key thing that Americans need to know is this is going to create millions of good-paying jobs. Everyone's worried. If we do it right. It is. Yeah. We're, we're going to rebuild this country, and we're going to do it with well-paid union labor. This is going to clean up our air and water. It's going to, I call my climate plan a justice-based climate plan, that we're going to specifically clean up the air and water in the black and brown communities where this society has overwhelmingly focused the, the air you can't breathe and the water right. you can't drink. But the other thing that's true, Ed, and this is a critical point, if you're not willing to say it's your top priority, if you're not willing to declare a state of emergency, then you tell me how you go to India, China, Brazil, Turkey, every country in the world, and tell them, you need to listen to us on climate. We need to solve this together. If we're not doing the right thing, why would they conceivably listen to us? Yeah. How do you have yeah. this? How do you have the chops right. to walk in there and say this is a critical world problem that we absolutely have to solve together, and we're going to help you do it, but you're going to have to do it with us. And so let's figure out how to have yeah. so your people don't suffer. Yeah. If we, if we walk in and say, yeah, we're polluting our heads off, but we think you should solve the problem. Yeah. They, who would believe that? Yeah, that's not very credible. So with the last uh, ninety seconds or so we have left. What's your what's a what's a great favorite campaign story from your time here in Iowa? Well, for, there are two things I'm going to tell you. One is my aunt Betsy is going to turn 100 in Iowa City on December 15th, 2019. Oh wow! So just to be clear, big party. Well, it, it's a command. <laughs> I think of it as a command performance. I don't know how many people have been commanded, but I know I have. So. For everybody, look, I've been coming to Iowa since I was a little kid to see my uncle. My uncle was a professor at the University of Iowa hmm. for 40 or 50 years. But the second thing I'll say is this. One of the seminal experiences I had on this campaign was talking with a group of mental health workers in Iowa working for the state, unionized workers who were being abused. Hmm. They weren't being paid fairly. They weren't being treated fairly. Across the board, what I could see was the cruelty of really Republican policies towards the people of the United States. And it was, I, I've seen it in a variety of instances. I've seen it in healthcare. I've seen it in education. This was about working people being mistreated. Mm. And it was, it was absolutely wrong. They were being denied their overtime. They were being denied their raises. They were being abused physically. They were being abused in terms of how they were treated, in terms of their rights. It was absolutely shocking to me and absolutely important to hear. Mm. And it was right here in Iowa, in mental health facilities, mm. basically nurses not being treated right. And mm. that's what I, 
there is something here where this government is not treating people right, and people over-intellectualize it. Yeah. It's cruelty to human beings, whether it's young people or students, working people or seniors. It's cruelty to human beings for money for rich people. Concern, yeah, concern across the spectrum of mental health care is becoming a more and more a higher and higher priority. Huge issue here in here Iowa. In Iowa Gigantic yeah. issue. Yeah. Way underreported. People don't talk about it nearly enough, and we're not devoting the resources, the money, or the focus to make sure that Iowans are getting the mental health. Mental health is health. We should be spending the money to make sure that health is a right for every American. Well, uh, thank you for joining us, uh, folks. We've been talking with uh, Tom Steyer, businessman, philanthropist, uh, climate activist, and a candidate for president. So thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Brother Trucker, folks, and this is Ed Fallon, your host. We're back here at it, uh, broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're live here on Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. 
Later in the program, we'll be taking a look at the COP25 Climate Summit just wrapping up in Madrid, Spain. But first, I want to go to our phone lines and welcome uh, Thomas Lindsay to the program. Uh, Thomas, are you with us? Yes, thanks for having us. Great. Thomas is with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, and he's been involved in um, a very unique effort. We believe this may be the first of its kind in the country, the Florida Democratic Party adopting rights of nature in its party platform. Yeah, Ed, it's an amazing step forward and builds on the work of about uh, nine countywide efforts of grassroots activists who are now pushing to qualify for the ballot in those counties. Uh, rights for ecosystems, including waterways, rivers, and bays in the state of Florida. Now, was that a fairly contentious conversation, or did it go pretty swimmingly? Uh, it went pretty swimmingly. We had some folks who were involved from the Democratic Party in these county-based efforts to recognize rights for watersheds and rivers and bays. And they brought it up at the platform committee meeting, and it was voted on twice and made it into the official platform for the Democratic Party of Florida. All right. Was that the uh, first attempt, or is this something that's been in the works for a while? Well, it's the first ever in the United States where the a state Democratic Party has actually taken a position on this new form of environmental protection and grassroots organizing. So okay. it was a big, big step forward. Okay. But was it, was it the first time the Florida Democratic Party had considered it, or had they shot it down in previous attempts, or was this really just a one-shot and it, and it worked the first time? No, it was the first time that it was introduced to the platform okay. committee, and we have to understand, of course, that the state of Florida's waterways are at an all-time low, and so that pushed the conversation, I think. When you say at an all-time low, you're talking water quality-wise? Yeah, I just uh, got back from Florida a little while ago, and I don't think people fully understand what's happening there. I certainly didn't. But dead manatees washing up, people with surgical masks on the beach, cyanobacteria making people ill. So wait, hang, uh, hang on. Let's take these one at a time. Sure. Uh, manatees washing up on the Gulf Coast? Uh, Gulf Coast, yes. What, uh, what, what's, what's happening? Well, the blue-green algae and the red tide problems that are occurring in Florida as a result of nutrient and toxin runoff. So the rivers carry the toxins and pollutants offshore, and then it creates nutrient blooms, and which then in turn creates cyanobacteria, which is a toxin in itself. How, and, how, uh, how long has this been a problem for? Uh, it's been going on for at least uh, 30 years in Florida, but the, the tempo of it getting worse has accelerated recently. And have they pinpointed the problem? Well, the problem is multifaceted. So it's not just the nutrients from farm and, and septic tank operations washing down. It's just the, it's the sheer size of development and the sheer pace of development in Florida. Uh, in addition to things like phosphate mining and Nestle looking to pump water out of some of the pristine springs there. So it's a combination of a, a bunch of different factors. Why would, uh, why would Nestle want to pump water from those springs? Well, they want to set up a bottling operation to pump pristine water from some of these springs in Florida, uh -huh. and that uh, would cause a drawdown, of course, and then uh, not only in water quality but also water quantity in the so, area. So Nestle apparently not learning from its past transgressions in Africa, feeding contaminated formula to, uh, to pregnant women in African countries, now would want to take uh, pristine spring water from Florida, put it in plastic bottles, and sell that to us for a lot of money. Yes, that's the plan. Well, that's, a, that's a brilliant marketing strategy. Same thing they've done in Freiburg, Maine, and a bunch of other places. Really? Okay. So, but that's just one. That's just one element of what's uh, causing the manatee die-off. You mentioned uh, development in general. So, are we talking about urban development, or is agriculture also part of the problem? It's just the uh, part of it is the sheer number of people, but agriculture is also an issue. And what's happening in Florida replicates some of what happened in Toledo uh, this past year, where right. the residents of Toledo passed the Lake Erie Bill of Rights to recognize rights for the lake. Right. And when we say residents of Lake Erie, you mean the cities along Lake Erie? Residents of Toledo. So the city Toledo, Toledo specifically. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's basically a representation of a new cutting edge of environmental law, which is recognizing that we can get on our knees and beg and plead state regulators and state legislatures to do yeah. work to protect ecosystems, but that's not happening. Are you familiar with our situation here in Des Moines, Iowa? Uh, I can't say that I am. Okay, well, we have a we have a major nitrate problem, um, soil and and 
and, and uh, fertilizer from agriculture uh, runs into our watershed. It, it got so bad that the uh, previous, um, now um, uh, deceased, uh, director of the Des Moines Water Works had filed a lawsuit against three counties uh, that were upstream the, the, in the headwaters of the Raccoon River, three counties where a lot of pollution was, uh, was said to be you know, getting into the water stream and, and beginning to cause the, uh, the problem. We, we have the most expensive nitrate removal system in the world because of this, and yet it still hasn't fully addressed the problem. Uh, and so, you know, your message might be well received here in central Iowa as well, although I would say that statewide it's a message that does carry a certain amount of controversy because of the conflict between urban dwellers in Des Moines in particular um, and then farmers who don't want to be told what to do. And again, I'm, I, I'm not, I think there's some concerns about how farmers are being brought into this conversation. I think we could do a better job of that, but, but definitely there's a problem. Uh, I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have the most expensive nitrate system, nitrate, nitrate removal system in the world. Yeah, our basic message, Ed, and the, and the people that we work with in the United States, we've assisted about 300 communities to adopt local laws dealing with environmental protection. Our basic message is that people have given up hope that the state or federal government is capable or willing of actually helping with these issues, and that power has to be returned back to localities for veto power over things like new pipelines and fossil fuel facilities and other things that are going to harm them. So this decentralized local control message about communities having the ability to govern themselves and to say no to these projects coming in, and then to recognize and expand human and environmental rights at the local level without interference from the state and federal government. So a city passes a law uh, saying that it will not allow fracking, for example. I believe Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania did that, correct? Yes. What impact does that have, though, when the state says, okay, we're going to override that and allow allow a company to, to frack within your city limits? Right. Are so they the able legal, to do that? The legal theory that we've pioneered over the past 15 years mm -hmm. is that the state acts unconstitutionally when they actually operate to try to preempt municipalities from taking that kind of action. In essence, you have a city, in that case, or the people of the city, passing a law that exceeds the environmental standards that have been set by the state. And so the legal theory that we've been running in the courts and in the communities in which we work is that people within municipalities have a constitutional right of self-governance. That means that when the state operates to try to, to crash down on them by setting lesser standards than what they've set, that the state is acting unconstitutionally and constitutionally can't do it. And how does that play out in the courts? Once the courts weigh in, are they coming down on the side of the uh, municipality or the polluters and in most cases, state or federal government? Mostly the polluters and the state and federal government, which is why, at least in our eyes, there needs to be a revolt of sorts by these communities, which has been our work for the past 15 years, that only through sheer force of people and communities rising up to force this kind of change are the courts ever going to be the folks that actually recognize a new constitutional theory that has us not begging and pleading with state regulators to stop pipelines or filing lawsuits, but actually has communities possessing the veto power over those projects. So, again, just to put it, uh, to look at it broadly again, of the 300 communities that have passed the community rights ordinance, have any been successful at curtailing the, the uh, problem that they were trying to correct? Well, many have curtailed it just by the sheer fact that they weren't challenged. So, for example, some communities in Maine challenged Nestle's plan to expand their water drilling operations near the coast of Maine uh, and were stopped by the ordinances that were put in place because the company didn't want to tangle with the municipalities over them, so Nestle pulled out. And we have a bunch of examples of corporations leaving when communities exercise this kind of right of self-governance. But when they drag it into the courts, because the courts are the authors of things like preemption doctrine and the authority of the state to come in and crush municipalities, that Generally, courts have agreed with the corporations that drag the courts into these controversies. Right. Okay. So, and again, get back to the main point of our topic here. Uh, we've had we've had well 300 municipalities pass these uh, these ordinances, uh, reclaiming uh, their right to influence to to control what happens within their boundaries. Now, the Florida Democratic Party is a different kind of entity. There's no. Well, I mean, it's the entire state of Florida, but there's no government authority invested in the Democratic Party of Florida. 
So what what is what is going to happen with that 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 rights of nature um, platform resolution? What's the next step to you know to to pull any any uh, any broader um, meaning into that? Well, for the folks in Florida, it gave them a base of people through the Democratic Party that are energized and active to get these initiatives qualified onto the ballot. So in the nine counties that are actually collecting signatures to qualify these rights of nature initiatives, which recognize things like the Caloosahatchee River having a right to exist and flow and be restored. In other words, recognizing that ecosystems themselves have rights, not just people who use those ecosystems. That it's given the folks in Florida a base of people to draw from, and that the Florida Democratic Party has now opened its doors by putting this on the uh, on the platform in their platform to actually have people find out about these efforts, to have people volunteer for these efforts, to have people fundraise for these efforts. So, uh, what began as a relatively small effort around one or two counties in Florida has now grown to nine on its way to twenty. Wow, and that's impressive. Event- that's good. Yeah, so, eventually seeks to change the face of how Florida operates. Now, a couple, three years ago, I was in uh, in uh, Florida visiting the uh, folks who were fighting the Sable Trail pipeline. Mm-hmm. Does this ordinance speak at all, does this resolution rather speak at all to that that uh, conflict specifically? Uh, the platform committee work does not, uh, but it speaks about threats to the ecosystems and natural environment in Florida. And mm-hmm. just to be clear, these are not resolutions, but binding laws that people are seeking to pass within their counties. So either as county initiatives, which have the force of law within those counties, or as charter amendments to actually uh, amend the charter within within those counties. And the biggest place, I think, that has moved so far is Orange County, where the Orange County commissioners, the county commissioners, have a charter review commission set up to actually begin to add new things to the county charter. And they've taken two votes now to actually move the rights of nature provisions hmm. uh, forward and closer to a vote uh, to get into the county charter mechanism. Now, saving the uh, the biggest question for last, Thomas, with Florida, the state that is probably going to be most severely impacted by climate change, uh, is, are the, is the Florida Democratic Party and any other entity in the state uh, moving with any kind of any, aggressively toward trying to address the reality of rising sea levels and other climate impacts that are going to affect the uh, the uh, the peninsula. Yeah, I can't see much happening uh, in the state of Florida through the state government of Florida, but the folks on the ground are very much focused on climate change as well as these other issues. Yeah. And in fact, the local legislation that we've pioneered over the past 15 years has been used in places like Lafayette, Colorado to adopt a right to climate law, which recognizes that people have a right to a healthy climate, the ecosystems have a right to a healthy climate, and actually makes it a legally enforceable right within those municipalities. So I think the trend here on environmental protection is to get away from filing comments with state agencies and begging and pleading state and federal levels of government agencies to do something. I think it's more about taking control ourselves at the local level and using these municipal levels of governance to advance a brand new environmental right. protection system. Well, very good. Uh, fascinating stuff, Thomas. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Yes, thanks for having us on it. Folks, this is uh, Thomas Lindsay with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. We've been talking about the Florida Democratic Party's attempt to or our successful effort to adopt rights of nature in its party platform with the intent of trying to protect a lot of the uh, natural uh, resources that Florida is so famous for and so reliant upon. Again, thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thanks, Ed, for having us. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to take a look at COP25 and what has happened in Madrid. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Quick shout out to some of our local business partners. Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and a fantastic place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service. Think about that this holiday season. Also, think about the fact they've got these gift cards, which make great holiday presents. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Also, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with excellent, friendly service. 
And finally, thanks to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. That's uh, they've, they've got all your insurance needs covered under one roof, folks. Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand. All right, welcome back to the program here, folks. We are moving into the climate emergency update component of our program. And, of course, the biggest news to report on there is the COP25 uh, summit, which ended this past weekend. And for those who aren't familiar with it, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. Interesting. Anyway, it's been going on for 25 years. And, of course, the big one was four years ago in Paris. And the hope was, I mean, that was regarded as a big success, right? Laying the foundations for this, you know, great effort this year, which again, got off to a bad start because we moved from Chile to Spain. Uh, that didn't, that, that, um, that went surprisingly well, considering how last minute and, and, and dramatic a shift that was. But the, the bottom line is, uh, for the most part, I, I will talk about some good things that came out of the conference, but for the most part, it's being regarded as a failure by climate observers. Now, one, all right, so it started off on the wrong foot. So, you know, when you, when you, when you initiate a conversation, you usually want to, you know, shoot high, and then maybe you have to come back to a fallback position. Well, they shot low to start with. <laughs> so I'm not sure who was thinking that was a good idea. You know, as a former lawmaker, I, I remember wanting, for example, uh, to get a million bucks for the emergency assistance program for low-income people to be able to stay in their homes or pay the utility bill. So we started with 1.5 million and we got a million. Uh, so, you know, that's the way those things work. I'm not sure what they were thinking about starting low and imagining that could possibly work high. So also, I mean, a big part of the problem was you've got this, you've got science saying one thing and you've got the general public all over the world saying the same thing. So there are these huge expectations that something needs to happen and needs to happen soon and needs to happen big. And yet there's this huge gap between that reality and the people on the inside doing the negotiations. And so that disconnect, it just kind of highlights this whole, this whole sense of urgency that, that, um, that, that is again, you're getting more and more intense because of the lack of, um, lack of accommodation of what science is telling us. Now, again, along the same, you know, lines of that, uh, of that, um, that dichotomy, you've got, you know, you know, you've got the folks on the inside who are, again, there, invited, official, dignified. Um, and again, many of them are on our side and, and know that things need to change. Something big needs to happen. And meanwhile, on the outside, you've got activists, activists who, um, and I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that there was a designated free speech zone. Maybe not. But of course, in the U.S., that's how it goes these days. You've got a designated free speech zone where you can say whatever you want, where nobody can hear it. <laughs> that's not always the case, but it often happens that way. So there was an unauthorized protest, and loads of people showed up, and hundreds were, I don't know if they were actually arrested, but they were ejected by security. And one of the observers said, and I quote, it's clear that civil society is at a boiling point. They are frustrated with the glacial, that's a great pun, isn't it? Glacial pace of the conference, and they are livid with the presence of polluters and their trade associations. So I had to think about that. What, what, are, they, what are they referring to, uh, polluters and trade associations? Well, uh, apparently, these conferences allow oil and gas company representatives in. And I'm going to talk more about that in a bit. So, okay, back to the inside of the conference. You know, in Paris, back in 2015, uh, the nations of the world that signed the uh, protocol uh, submitted their, their initial climate plans. And, um, you know, for the larger countries that have all the staff and the experience and whatnot, that was a fairly easy thing for them to do. Uh, but the goal was that by 2020, they were supposed to do a lot more. 2015, Paris, COP21, was a starting point. Madrid was supposed to be, okay, we got one year to go here. We're prepping for the big one in 2020. Let's, let's, let's step up to the plate. And that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Of course, the U.S., under Donald Trump's leadership, 
pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord was a huge setback. Uh, that set up this whole antagonistic uh, relationship between the U.S. and those at COP25 that really wanted to do something. But, you know, unfortunately, I, I'd like to say that the U.S. was the only villain, but no, that's not the case. Uh, Saudi Arabia, all of, our, all of our great allies in the world, the, the countries that, that best represent our democratic ideals, Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, China, Brazil, all these countries were standing in the way of trying to make true progress toward a, an accord that, that really moves us forward. So, um, you know, the, the bottom line is these countries um, are going to have to, <laughs> hopefully something's going to change in many of them in the next year so that when we do see the COP26 convening Glasgow next November, there will be uh, the foundation for some success. But again, we hope that would happen in Madrid. It didn't. And now we have less than a year to prep for 2020. And again, you know, these are all political dates uh, and, and, and human targets. What's not, what's not political and what's not human-driven anymore is the time frame of climate change. Sure, the impacts, what's causing climate change is human-driven. But right now, nature is in control. Uh, nature bats last, so to speak, and she is outlining a time frame that she's not sharing the full details with us, but it's pretty clear that it's a on a faster time track than we imagined. So there were some positive things that came out of the 2019 Climate Accord or Climate Summit. So in, um, you know, in Paris, there was an agreement reached and it was 16 pages in length, not, not too bad. But noticeably absent from those 16 pages were the words fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, not one single mention of those things. And that's, um, a, pretty, that's a pretty noticeable omission because that's what's causing climate change. Nearly two-thirds of all the greenhouse gas emissions on Earth are caused from the production and burning of coal, oil, and gas. So... Again, fossil fuels have for a long time been, you know, been verboten. You, you have, you've not been able to really talk about them or dig into them. And why is that? Well, apparently, I didn't know this, but fossil fuel industry lobbyists have had, you know, unlimited access to the COPE process. They're there. <laughs> you know, someone pointed out like this. It's as if the World Health Organization... You know, which you know is, is sometimes will negotiate tobacco cessation initiatives. It's as if the World Health Organization, at some of those conferences where they're doing that, would allow tobacco lobbyists to be taking part in part in them. That's the equivalent. Or from my point of view, just an example from my days in the Iowa legislature. You know, and actually, I'm glad to say this wasn't my time in the legislature. This ended just before I got up there. It used to be that lobbyists were allowed to sit in the back of the chamber. Uh, they could, and actually, they could sit back there and, with reference to tobacco. They could smoke. <laughs> so they'd sit in the back with their nice fancy outfits and their big cigars, and they'd smoke. Uh, and they would, um, you know, when they had a concern about a piece of legislation, they would call a lawmaker over to them and say you know, whatever they needed to say to make sure that they would, you know, make sure that law didn't impact them adversely. That's what this that's what's having having fossil fuel lobbyists at a COPE conference that is makes no I mean talk about fox guarding the chicken hoop chicken coop. That's like letting the fox come into the coop and spend the night. So um yeah, in Madrid this past week you had big oil companies like Shell and then like the and then the Canadian Associate Canadian Association for Petroleum Producers. They were there, they were pitching their ideas about carbon training and their geoengineering technology. And, you know, it's a type of greenwashing. Really what's behind it is they, they, they want to continue to extract and sell and burn fossil fuels because that's how they make all their money. And so one way to do that is say, well, you know, yeah, we understand that we've got to do something about climate change. Uh, and, yeah, we can, we can deal with that with geoengineering. We can deal with that by creating a system of trading carbon credits. So... The big thing that happened this, this year that might change that in the future is 
Fossil fuels were finally identified. They were finally talked about. They were finally included in the, uh, in the conversation. To quote from one story, the change is first and foremost thanks to the tireless advocacy of activists on the front lines of this crisis, especially indigenous communities who have led the fight against fossil fuel expansion. The quote, keep it in the ground mantra is finally gaining traction. And yeah, of, of note is that when, when the UN Secretary General opened COP25, he said, quote, we simply have to stop digging and drilling. And of course, digging and drilling is a direct reference to fossil fuel extraction. And some said that if he had said that years ago, even last year, at a COPE conference, he would have been thrown out. <laughs> I don't know if that's the case, but I wouldn't doubt it. So uh, concurrent with Madrid, a series of new reports have been released that uh, just tell you the just really describe the world of hurt we're in. There's the production gap report that was produced by the UN Environment Program uh, and in, col in collaboration with a bunch of leading research institutes, institutions. Um, and what it showed was that governments are preparing to produce 120% more fossil fuels by 2030. They're going to be extracting 120% more within the next decade, then would be consistent with limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And 1.5, of course, is the target set by Paris. So they're already doing what they said they knew they had not to do. <laughs> now, that, that report coincided with another report by the Oil, Gas, and Climate... Uh, it's called the... Yeah, I think it's called the Oil, Gas, and Climate Report. And... Um, that was also released during COP25, and it showed that oil companies are investing or intending to invest $1.4 trillion in new oil and gas extraction between 2020 and 2024. Now, that's, you, you can't, if, 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 the, if the trajectory has to change, if you have to go from emitting as, many, as much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases as we are now to a much lower level, that has to change. And yet here they are, planning a $1.4 trillion expansion. Now that's globally, and I'll give you two guesses as to where 85% of that expanded production is going to happen. You probably guessed the U.S., you were correct. You might also have guessed Canada. And of course, with the Alberta tar sands in full operation, and with more and more pressure to build the Keystone Pipeline, there's, uh, there's, you know, the, 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 the companies that produce these problems, <laughs> let's call them problems, are expecting to be able to achieve that investment. We'll see, because again, you know, that investment is one thing. The scientific reality is another, and we can't continue this direction. And, and again, if we're going to get to the point where the, 20, the, uh, the 2020 Glasgow summit is going to matter, if it's, if it's really going to accomplish what it needs to, we're going to have to see that figure change dramatically. So, again, the good news out of, um, more good news, limited, but we'll take it, good news out of, out of um, Madrid, is that some countries and some regions, some businesses and investors are beginning to take action, uh, noted specifically where New Zealand France, Costa Rica, Belize, Denmark, and of course, the island nations that are most immediately impacted by sea level rise. They're all taking steps to stop the future extraction of oil and gas. Although there are some loopholes that do need to be addressed as well. So, again, other good things are happening as well. In November, California, the third largest oil producing state in the U.S., blocked new fracking. That's good. And in December this month, earlier this month, the $24 billion Norwegian insurance giant, Storbrand, divested from fossil fuels. And Storbrand, in doing that, joined more than 1,000 institutions worth over $17 trillion who have made some form of fossil fuel divestment commitment. These are good things. I mean, that, that happened independently from COPE, but during COPE.
And last week, also during COPE, the Swiss Parliament announced it would be looking at divesting $800 billion from the Swiss National Bank, $800 billion that, go, that, went, that goes to fossil fuel production. So there are things happening. And um, in my world, in Iowa, uh, a couple weeks ago, Bold Iowa released a report showing that leading that uh, the Democratic candidates, 10 of the uh, leading Democratic candidates, came out with statements against expanding the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now here, the Dakota Access Pipeline is one of the key uh, expansion projects identified by the in- industry. And if they get to expand it, it would mean the equivalent of 30 new coal-fired power plants. So it's pretty exciting to see all these candidates coming out against it. Cory Cory Booker says, um, quote, climate change is not some distant threat. It's happening now. And without deliberate and bold action, we risk an incredible human toll from disasters and health impacts, preventable national security threats, and trillions of dollars in economic losses. It is my duty as a public service to oppose projects that would further destabilize our climate including the proposed expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's good. Those are strong words. John Delaney, also pretty strong. He says, quote, I oppose building the DAPL in the first place, and I certainly oppose increasing its capacity now. We need to transition away from fossil fuels as we work to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and expanding the pipeline is a big step in the wrong direction. Good. And Tulsi Gabbard, says, quote, we must strongly oppose the plan to increase the volume of oil flowing through the Dakota Access Pipeline. Doubling the oil flow through the pipeline greatly increases both the likelihood and severity of spills. Time and time again, we have witnessed so-called state-of-the-art pipelines and release detection systems fail. And she mentions traveling to North Dakota in her time with Standing Rock when DAPA was originally proposed. Uh, Bernie Sanders says, quote, if this expansion plan goes through, it would be a disaster for Americans' health, clean water, and our climate. I am proud to have fought the Dakota Access Pipeline when it was first proposed, and I continue to stand with the communities who have been fighting it every step of the way. As president, I will shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline that never should have been built in the first place. And Tom Steyer says, quote, I'm against the DAPL expansion. I have fought pipeline expansions like the Keystone XL pipeline for years because of the impact on local communities and the impact on our planet. He goes on to say more. And then Elizabeth Warren, uh, I don't have a direct quote from her, but her staff wrote, quote, Warren does not support the proposal to double the flow of oil through the Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, Marianne Williamson in Pretty strong language. The Dakota Access Pipeline has been a disaster. The pipeline should never have been built. It violates U.S. government treaties with indigenous people. Since the 1860s, we have gone back on our word towards the Sioux people, and this is another example of treaty violation. And finally, Pete Buttigieg, his staff wrote, quote, Pete is opposed to DAPL expansion, close quote. <laughs> okay, that was pretty concise. Um, Joe Biden seems to want it both ways. He he talks to us about being against uh, or, or against pipelines, against DAPL. And then he goes on to say, and I'll give you a direct quote. You know, we have in America right now gas pipelines put in in the 1960s. Guess what? They're leaking methane. They're hurting people. They're killing people. You ready to pay more taxes to make sure we dig them up and make great jobs and put new pipelines down to be able to make sure we can travel this way? I'm not sure what Joe means about traveling this way, but he just said he wants new pipelines. (laughs) And almost immediately before then, he said he was against new pipelines. Go figure. Michael Bloomberg is less vague. When we confronted him a year ago about the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, he said, quote, what's the big deal? It's underground. The most disappointing candidate of all is Amy Klobuchar. Um... She says, basically, we need to greatly reduce our dependence, uh, but we might need pipelines in a limited way. I think for quite a while, we're going to see the use of gas and the use of oil. So we're going to continue to have some of that going on for years in the future. So she's really hedging, and she's saying, basically, we're going to continue to do this. 
She's not against pipelines. No response. We received no response from Michael Bennett, Julian Castro, or Andrew Yang. But anyway, there's some good stuff there. And I hope that people understand that, you know, overall, we've been pushing hard to get candidates to be more accountable on climate in general and to take specific stands on the Dakota Access Pipeline. And they have. And that's good. And let's continue to do that. And let's hope that the media and political leaders in Washington begin to change as well. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host here. Thanks to our production team of uh, Sherry Herdina, Kathy Burns, Ashley Martinez, and thanks to Juan Rodriguez and Lenny Montalvo at Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM.